Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So on this week's show, we're speaking with Noviolet Bulawayo about her new novel, Glory, which offers a powerful allegory of the last days of Zimbabwean dictator Robert Mugabe's nearly 40-year reign. You know, one of the things that was interesting to me about this book is how incredibly present it felt. Like on the one hand, and and Mm -hmm. we talk about uh, this with No Violet, on the one hand, it's specific to the history of Zimbabwe, but it also feels very much resonant with what's happening right now, as we see kind of like in the US, we had a near dictator or somebody who at least wanted to be a dictator, you know, and then we kind of see the rise of authoritarian regimes around the world. So in that way, it it felt, you know, like a particular story, but also a very global one. Yeah. I mean, something that struck me about her book is, and then I think you don't see that often, is like the performance of political rhetoric. Um, Yes. And that certainly is something that we are (laughs) seeing a lot of. Mm -hmm. Um, We have certainly seen a lot of it, you know, for a long time, but it does feel like particularly poisonous i don't i I don't want to be too alarmist i guess but a similar kind of performance of political conviction that is fully based in just a search for power yes 100 percent. and also i mean in the same kind of way that no violet deals with it in this book in which allegory kind of does it's absurd right i mean there's like the absurdity anyways all right well let's jump into that conversation let's get to it We have Noviolet Bulawayo with us on the line today. Noviolet is the author of We Need New Names, which was a finalist for the Booker Prize and won the Penn Hemingway Award, the Art Seidenbaum Award for First Fiction, the Hurston Wright Legacy Award for Fiction, and the Eti Salat Prize for Literature. Bulawayo grew up in Zimbabwe and now lives in the United States. She joins us today to talk about her latest novel, Glory, which explores the waning days and political ouster of Robert Mugabe, the authoritarian leader who controlled Noviolet's home country of Zimbabwe for nearly four decades before he was overthrown in a coup spearheaded by his vice president, Emmanuel Menangagwa. Allegorized as animals in the style of George Orwell's Animal Farm, the major players in Mugabe's ouster and a chorus of citizens tell the story of utopian promise that becomes totalitarian terror of ruthless political subterfuge and citizens' everyday survival, of a country torn between the righting of old wrongs and the almost cyclical production of new ones. At once an allegory for Zimbabwe's history and a deeply poignant reading of our own globally fractious moment, Glory is an apt study of how leaders command and forfeit power, as well as how the lives of ordinary people get caught in the roiling waters of the political. Thanks so much for joining us, Noviolet. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So I wanted to start by just the story of how you came to this book and the particular form of this book. So this book came to me (laughs) instead of the other way around. And that was through the ouster of Robert Mugabe on November 14, 2017. It's an event that I never thought I would see in my lifetime. He had been so invisible that I had reconciled myself along with a lot of my countrymen 
to the idea that he was simply going to die in power. And of course, I think he was in his 90s when the ouster happened. It felt like too big of a story not to ignore. And my first instinct was to respond to it through nonfiction because mm-hmm. I think like, okay, it's a story that's coming outside of me. I don't own it. I'm just going to interrogate what his fall means to us as Zimbabweans, to me, to our past and to our future. But after a few months of working and doing research, I realized that I needed another medium of telling the story for so many different reasons. I think a big part of it was me realizing that it really did not have to be about Mukabe and the power figures. It actually needed to open up to include the stories of ordinary Zimbabweans. And Mm. fiction felt like, you know, the technology to actually allow the novel to breathe, to grow, and to stretch in ways that allowed everybody's voice to come in. And of course, it's not just fiction, it's fiction told in animal voices. It focuses on the animal kingdom, specifically from animals. And that came from the fact that the story was so was very fresh, very recent. It was unfolding sometimes as I was writing it. So it felt Mm -hmm. like I was often competing with a reality that in many ways was overwhelming for its absurdity. Sometimes that it outcompeted my writing. Using farm animals allowed me to sort of push back and at least match, especially the absurd elements of the narrative at the time. As a follow-up, so... I'm curious, you were born in Zimbabwe, you grew up there, and I wonder how, during your childhood, how you grew up thinking about the government and the country. I mean, you mentioned that you you felt that you would never see Mugabe out of power. <laughs> it felt almost impossible. But as a child, how did you understand this political reality? I think as a child, I grew up understanding that Mugabe was the government. The government was Mugabe. He was so omnipresent. There was no, you couldn't imagine anything beyond him. And that was because we very quickly became a one-party state the moment we gained independence. You know, there were no opposition figures that were prominent that we could think of. If they were, they were quickly swallowed by the ruling party. And indeed, the paradox is that the founder of Zimbabwe's resistance was not Robert Mugabe. There were other players. But over time, they quickly kind of faded off the scene. They were either silenced or eliminated or absorbed into the ruling party to make a one-party state. And of course, we had that very violent period between the years 1983 to 1987 that left about 20,000 People dead. And I think it's fair to say that that was the one defining moment that actually shaped the course of how Robert Mugabe emerged out of that painful period to become the one party leader that he was. And also framed the way he was understood. You know, some of our parents, some of our elders, because of that violent period, actually feared him. You know, so we kind of grew up surrounded by that fear and also the realization that he was he was there to stay. The realization that was undone almost four decades later. One of the things that let's focus on the people, both of the novel and kind of their real life counterparts in Zimbabwe as you were writing them through the allegory. 
There's an interesting moment, and I think it's true actually of all life under autocracy or under dictatorships, in which there's a kind of interesting doublespeak that the people perform, right? So in the beginning, you have everyday people kind of being interviewed and they will say something like the father of the nation, in this case, the stand-in for Mugabe, is amazing. He's wonderful. He has liberated the country. I only wish that one more act of liberation could be that I would have a job or that I would be able to feed my kids every once in a while, you know, like these kind of basic provisions. So I'm interested in this way in which citizens living under dictatorship have to constantly manage this doubleness whenever they speak in public, both like offering their complaint, like this is the thing that I don't have, I need a job, but it's always couched in a kind of way of agreeing with the regime's perspective. Absolutely. I think part of that is the fact that it's actually complicated to live in that kind of space, specifically thinking about Zimbabwe and how Mm. Figures like Robert Mugabe and many in his power do not have clean, single stories, right? At that point, they were liberators who actually had so much support, who delivered freedom. But then there is the other side of the coin that they very quickly turned into oppressors. And in other cases, even mass murderers. And then... What I have come to appreciate, especially when I think of elections and how people continue voting, not just in Zimbabwe, voting for their abusers who are inefficient, corrupt, and doing absolutely nothing to better the people's lives, I really realize that people are struggling with moving beyond that very present, often manipulated narrative of this person liberated us. Without these people, we would not have gained freedom. But there's also an element of fear as well, because the reality is that if some of our countries were truly free and fair, if our electoral processes were free and fair, people would be voting otherwise, but that they can't because they are forced to, they are encouraged to in so many different ways. What that translates to and what I'm interested in as an artist especially as it affects my characters, is this complicated sense of identity that we are crying with one eye and we're laughing with the other. It makes for a very confused and heartbreaking existence. Well, there's also, as you're saying it, or rather as you're talking, I'm thinking about the weird way in which one maintains kind of fidelity or attachment to the liberatory moment, right? That there's like, that past can't be entirely excised, even if, like you said, you've moved from being a liberator to an oppressor. But there's so much hope and potential bound up with the moment of liberation that I think it remains very, very difficult for people to let go of that, even when what comes after is not necessarily working in the ways that they expected. Well, definitely. And it's quite interesting to see how even in our families, we have the older generation who have this romantic image of Robert Mugabe and the ruling party who are either thinking of him with so much nostalgia, um, so much fondness, who, despite the fact that they not having the greatest experiences, are still going to go and vote for the ruling party. I mean, we just had the by-elections on March 26, and I'm happy that the opposition actually came out strong. 
But what is worrisome is that a significant percentage of people still voted for the ruling party, given the circumstances, is just disappointing and mind-boggling. One thing that's changed, so if we use like Animal Farm as one version of this allegory and kind of the collapse of Soviet Russia, but then there's also similar in the 1980s and early 1990s in Zimbabwe, the characters in your book actually have access to a different space for their voice to take place, right? So this is the internet. And in the book, it is called, there's the country country, which is real life, in which speech is kind of foreclosed in all these ways that we're talking about through fear and other forms of limitation. But in the other country, these characters are able to express themselves in different ways. And I'm wondering for you, having kind of lived through that period, you know, how do you see the distinction between kind of online and offline possibilities for voice under an autocratic ruler or dictatorship? I think the online possibility is that there's a freedom that is not found on the ground. You have the safety of anonymity. Mm -hmm. If you so choose, especially in spaces like Twitter or Facebook, nobody knows who you are, nobody knows where you stay, nobody can come for you. And of course, that's where really most of the organizing happens. And I've seen this happen not just in Zimbabwe, but throughout the world. I think activists have made strides that would otherwise not have been possible. I'm remembering, especially thinking back a few years ago, to this flag movement that took off on the internet and united Zimbabweans both in the country country and in the other country. And it was amazing to see. The challenge, however, is translating that energy on the ground and convincing people to actually come, you know. For instance, people would pledge to show up to a protest online, but when it comes to showing up, after the government has come online and reminded people who's in charge, you find that those numbers and that energy, that excitement, that spirit of resistance does not always translate to the ground. And you understand where the people's fear come from because the reality is that the ground is gotten so bloody. We understand it as bloody because we know what our defenders are capable of. That said, I hope we continue to come up with creative ways of uniting those two spaces because without figuring that out, unfortunately, our resistance won't go as far as it needs to. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Noviolet Bulawayo, author of Glory, We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Danielle J. Lindemann on the line with us today. Her new book is called True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us, and she is here to give us a book recommendation. Danielle, what book are you going to recommend? So this might be a little field because this is not a sociology book, Um, but I want to recommend Self-Help by Laurie Moore. It's a collection of short stories. Um, And I read that book when I was in college as a creative writing major. Um, Mm -hmm. And just the way that she uses language is so quirky and amazing. Um, And she really just sort of opens up kind of a door for me in thinking about kind of how to use metaphor and how to use language. And it's just hilarious as well. So Self-Help by Laurie Moore would be my recommendation. 
That's such a good recommendation, a classic, I would Thank say. You. Is that a classic? I think so. I think, well, at least in my mind it is, at least in terms of short story collections and sort of classic American uh, contemporary authors. I think Lori Moore counts. What do you think? I mean, it's interesting because when I, I mean, she's, she's my favorite author, but when I, when I mention it, oftentimes people haven't heard of it. So I'm excited to introduce them to something new. I really hope that for, for those who have not heard of it, um, they really do pick it up because it's a, it's, it really is a wonderful book, as you say. All right, Danielle, thank you so much. Thank you. We've been speaking with Danielle Lindemann. Her new book is True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Noviolet Bulawayo, author of Glory. In the very beginning, there's two different kinds of ways in which women are involved in the government and in the presentation to the public of the government. One of them is the donkey who was married to the old horse, his wife, and the naked protesters that sort of storm the stage. And they're all females um, or females in the book. And I, I was curious about what you or how you think about like the complicated role of women in this book and in this story, because particularly women's bodies seem to be constantly under discussion as to like who owns them, what are they supposed to be doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and when are they not doing the thing they're supposed to be doing? I see. Um, and so, yes, I'm just curious about how how you think about the role of women in this kind of political tussle. With Marvelous the Donkey, I was interested in the woman who is very much aligned with the violent uh, power structure, with mm-hmm. patriarchy, and how she actually becomes a tool of the oppression of, of other women. And I think part of the heartbreak about Marvelous's journey is that when she when she falls, she does not have the kind of community and support that we see uh, women otherwise accord each other in places like Lose like Cave, which is this feminist space, and really the birthplace of the resistance that we see very early on in the novel. Those females, uh, the animals, of course, come from a place that is also named after um Zimbabwe's queen, Zimbabwe's Ndebele queen. So I kind of wanted to think about those conflicting spaces that women occupy. And hopefully, since glory is a conversation, have us thinking about why we occupy the spaces uh, we do and to what to what end. I did also want to celebrate the women who have led resistances, not just in Zim, but in similar spaces, despite um, despite the circumstances, despite the obstacles, because they tend to be forgotten when we talk about uh, patriotic histories and the national histories of, of these spaces. There's a character like Comrade Nevan Missinger, for instance, who is a liberator, she fought the war, but she is not celebrated. She does not figure in the national narrative of who and what makes a hero. But, you know, without giving too much of the novel, by the end, she actually rises up and proves to to be a hero among heroes. 
by solving one of Uganda's main, main, uh, main problems. So I wanted to offer women that complexity to say that we cannot read them in a single, in a, with a single lens. And, you know, one of the other female figures that I wanted to talk about is um, Destiny. I mean, and in part also her, her mother. So, and I'm perhaps not going too far out on a limb to say that Destiny's experience is somewhat similar to your own. She's a, a person who has lived outside the country who then returns and basically um, wants to chronicle what has happened to, to her people as a, as a way of um, bringing everyone together. I mean, effectively, there's a, an attempt really to kind of by telling stories, by telling the truth, really, um, to kind of heal national wounds. Mm. Um, and I think of her also as a figure of the embattled kind of diaspora subject, the person who is from that place, but who, and who is deeply emotionally, you know, corporeally, you know, united with it, but mm. is not there and is seeing things happen to her country while she's not there. And also the person who returns, you know, that's mm -hmm. the other part of, of the diasporic cleavage, you know, of, of exile yes. or leaving. Um, you come back and then the thing is not what you remembered it being, right? And that happens in little ways, um, but also in big ways. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that character, but also your experience living through in 2017, something that as a child you could not have mm -hmm. even imagined. Absolutely. So with, with, with Destiny being a returned exile, I wanted to sort of give a nod to the very real experience of so many people around the world right now who, for one reason or the other, have to leave their homelands um, in search of better, in search of greener pastures. There's that beautiful uh, poem by the Somali-British writer, I think there's a line that says, nobody leaves home until home is the mouth of a shark. And for Dest that is pretty much Destiny's story. She is ejected because of the election violence of 2008. I think that was the context that I was writing around. And unfortunately for her, she fails to find shelter. Exile is, um, has its own hostility, its own difficulties. She returns not out of will, but because she has no choice. And I cannot help but remember the waves of migrants um, from countries like Afghanistan, Syria, who failed to find shelter when they were looking for it, you know, in the name of wars that they did not start, that were brought unto them. And uh, yeah, I would put her in that category of somebody who fails to find it, comes back home. In her homecoming, she has to confront the thing that she left that made her leave, which is the violence. And unfortunately for her, the violence is still very much alive. But not only that, she finds that she has to deal with her own mother's unprocessed trauma because there's this dark history that she really was never was never aware of. But then something comes out of it in the sense that in the act of her mother sharing her story and her sharing her own story, she comes to some kind of healing that allows her to tap into her own family history 
confront the past and she emerges as this figure who's able to write about it. She doesn't come back with the intention of storytelling or writing like I do. I am always a writer. I live my life as a writer. But I'm interested in how she becomes this accidental storyteller and how that becomes such a radical catalyst for the change that we see at the end of the novel because it allows not just the immediate community in Lozi Kane, but the whole of Jidada to actually talk about what has been previously silenced and from that energy to rise up against tyranny and decide that they, they want better. As somebody who has lived outside, who left home, I am obviously kind of tethered there. It's still home. It's my second home. But moments like uh, the 2008 election or any election really in Zimbabwe are complicated moments because you know that they are not clean moments. You count as a Zimbabwean, you know that there will never be a free and fair election in Zimbabwe. And now I didn't. Sorry, do you, you you really you believe that there is no future? You cannot imagine a future in which there will be a, fair, a free and fair election. Not under the current government, and it's not a matter of me just imagining. That's what they tell us all the time. You know? Right. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> election yeah. time comes. They're like, uh, remember, this is Jidada. This is Zimbabwe, mm. and we know that. You know, I was telling you that we just had our by elections again. We saw the kind of election violence that is speaking to what 2023 is going to look like for some of us. We have to brace ourselves. So as a writer, as a Zimbabwean negotiating that from outside is, is, is always a, a challenge. It's always complicated. Tony Morrison said something about this being the time to go to work. It's not time for self-pity of fear, you have to write, we do language, you know, that's how civilizations heal. So I write out of the faith that I am writing for a space and maybe a generation of people who will read my work in what Edwidge Dantica calls uh, reading dangerously, because I'm hopefully creating dangerously. And by that, I mean um, imagining what Jidata, what Zimbabwe could be like. You know, I, I feel like part of uh, the work of the imagination is to channel our lived, real lived spaces toward, toward freedom. So I'm, I'm really interested in that kind of writing that participates in the, in the structure for our independence that way, by trying to imagine what it looks like, how it gets there. Hopefully, the country country and my imaginary country will meet somehow. Well, that, that's actually what I was going to ask. I was going to ask if, um, if you feel when you do that act of imagination, I think there can be two feelings that accompany it. Some, uh, it could be hope mm -hmm. or it could be despair, you know, to say, oh, the reality is so far from what I imagine. And I, I wonder how you feel when you do that work of imagination. And perhaps just doing the work can be hopeful, can be a hopeful mm -hmm. sort of act. But for you, what is, what is that experience like? Well, I mean, I, I always uh, shift between the two emotions, despair mm -hmm. and hope, because the country will definitely save you enough despair. But then at the same yeah. time, hope is important, it's necessary. 
I'm appreciating that it may not be the Zimbabwe that I'm writing to or writing mm. from that is going to connect with, with glory. It could be a future Zimbabwe down the road. It could be future generations and I may be gone by then. But wherever it is, I, I feel like um, I would have played my part in using my art uh, to sort of contribute to whatever and whenever that, that Zimbabwe is going to come about and what it's going to look like um, then. Well, one of the things that strikes me as really, and I suppose we were just talking about this, that the the movement in the book between rhetoric mm-hmm. and the power of rhetoric and reclaiming that and, and using the power of storytelling and language instead. And I wonder if that's something that you struggle with because it's the same thing, right? It's it's using language for one end or another. So I wonder if you if you sometimes think, is there some other way for me to approach these issues? Is there some other something other than language. Can you can you say the first part of your question? I don't think I understood. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, just that, that just that sometimes you know language can be used either way. It can mm-hmm, be used mm-hmm. for for bad or for good. Yeah, um, and in the beginning, you you see so much rhetoric being used mm. for bad. Um, <laughs> that I wonder if you're ever tempted. I mean, your work is as a writer, but mm-hmm. I wonder if you ever if you ever think. Is there some other way for me to make the changes that I want to see? You know, I'm, I'm confined in the sense that language is my country, you know. <laughs> it's the only country, uh, though I'm trying to push the boundaries a little bit by experimenting with, with, with different uh, forms. And uh, it's, it's not so much a struggle for me um, because I feel like my intent is coming from the right place, you know, and just thinking of my project as, as a writer, what it means for me to put word upon word on the page is opposed to the father of the nation, for instance, standing up and saying that word to the multitudes for, for all the wrong reasons. So I, I think I'm, I'm guided by that ethical impulse of what it means to to be a writer, why why am I writing, uh, and and to what end? You know, as as we wrap up, you know, I I wanted to return to something that I talked about in the in the introduction, which is that you know while Glory is allegorizing the last days of Mugabe's rule over Zimbabwe, the story bears, I think, for any reader, especially right now a striking resemblance to kind of, you know, autocratic regimes across the world, right? Especially the cracked, the ways that um, they not only crack down on press or on speech, certainly the politics, just as we were talking about with the um, the mothers of the disappeared, the use of shame and misogyny to kind of keep certain national narratives afloat. You know, and again, we've seen this lately with um, Vladimir Putin. We would also saw this in our own country with would-be autocrats like Donald Trump, who I really, I should point out, appears uh, in um, somewhat fictionalized form uh, on the internet in the book as uh, he uses the handle Big Baboon of the U.S. So I wanted to, to ask you first, like, kind of how these correspondences strike you you know, in, and whether or not maybe we're in an autocratic moment, you know, you're writing out of the the specific history of Zimbabwe, um, but it, again, it feels more universal. And also, um, 
kind of what you think we can learn from allegories of violent dictatorships or autocracies. Effectively, like allegories of where politics might have started in a good place and then went to a very bad place, right? So um, kind of if you could just talk a little bit about that. Okay. Um, we are definitely in, a, in an unamplified autocratic moment. But I say that remembering and acknowledging that some people, for some people in other parts of the world, this has really been their lives for long stretches of time. Right. So to, 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 to kind of mark this moment as if it's new um, can also be limiting in, mm-hmm. in, in a way. So we do acknowledge that for some people, this really has been their lives. And uh, for a space like Zim, depending on who you are talking to, because we have so many layers of Zimbabweness and so many understanding of what it means to be Zimbabweans. You talk to Zimbabweans, who will tell you that, well, since the beginning of the state, I have lived this kind of life and that's all I know. But the amplification certainly is a cause for concern, especially as it looks like we are not creative enough in figuring our way out of it especially as we consider that we have actually participated in the rise of these very problematic figures. We have groomed them, we've encouraged them, we've supported them. And all of a sudden, we really don't know how to, how to deal with them. And I think the, 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 the work of allegory, hopefully, is what will help us push our imaginations in terms of confronting and dealing with our, our present. That seems like a very good place to end <laughs> in terms of confronting our present. Um, thank you so much, Novilet, for, for speaking with us. Thank yes. you. We've been speaking with Novilet Bulawayo, author most recently of Glory. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Mm-hmm.